turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And today we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. And uh, I refer to this, this passage as stumbling toward, toward glory. Um, the reality of suffering. And there are three times that Paul uses the word groan uh, to speak of just like an internal, I mean, a groan is, it can be, uh, I have had friends, I won't name them, Tim Mackey, um, who loves to make sounds when he enjoys food. Anytime I would go out to dinner with him, if he, if he got something he liked, he'd just go, mmm, mmm, mmm. And I'm just like, I just love that it was so cathartic for him, eating like that. Uh, it was like, and it was, for some reason with him, it was always charming. Not always, most, most food sounds, noisy eaters is not a charming thing to me. Uh, but most time groaning really speaks not towards so much the positive, but it's the, that guttural response that flows out of deep emotions that, that words are not adequate for. I, I was experienced this a really intense scare. Uh, pain can cause that, where words cannot be articulated. Only, only the groan, the internal groan of just being so overwhelmed with what it is that you're experiencing that you cannot form words. I w had to rush to the ER on um, Friday with Darcy, and uh, um, it was terrifying because she couldn't talk and she just kept crying and she was in pain and all she could get out was, I feel like something exploded inside my side. And of course, you never wanna Google anything because all roads lead to cancer always. Uh, and I, and I, we get to the hospital and they didn't know what was going on and they needed to get her in a bunch of scans. But I was just was struck by that. Like there was so much pain and fear that it was like just this, this soft, just Darcy, this, that groan of just, I'm in so much pain, I can't stand up. It ended up being a, 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 actually a harmless thing, uh, but nonetheless a very painful thing. She had a cyst rupture on her ovary. Um, and uh, there's really nothing they do for it other than give you a pain pills. But I mean, it was, a, it was a scary thing when we were waiting for the results of the scans and she's still home recovering from it. But she was just like, that was the most insane pain, but it's, she's like, I felt like all I could do was just be like, oh, like I couldn't even form words. And I think we know that there can be physical groaning, but I, I'm struck by that, the groan that comes out of, out of deep suffering. I remember being next to a, a friend who, with terminal cancer, and they were getting ready to take him to hospice, and his wife came in, and and as soon as their girls had left the room, his wife collapsed at his head and let out a groan, a, 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 a wail of such intense grief that it, I just remember it feeling almost like otherworldly. It was, I'd never heard anyone wail before. I'd never heard anyone like, I mean, I've seen people cry hard, but I've never heard someone like, the most despairing wail of the soul, like, I am gonna lose my husband and he is gonna die in the next couple of days. And it was like, the grief was insurmountable and she just collapsed, uh, she collapsed at his head, literally like a tower, just fell over him. 
And it, it, what was crazy is he had stopped talking. And in that moment, it's like it almost, the whale actually rose him up. Like he, and he wrapped his arms around her for the last time. He, he hadn't even had the strength to do that. And he looked at her and, and just, she was finally able to get some words. And he just, I remember, he, I'll never forget it. He, his last words he ever spoke to her was good night. I love that, not goodbye, good night. But the groan of my friend, the deep rooted pain um, was also mixed with the words of her husband who had just found faith. And the good night was it's not goodbye. It's just, it's, it's goodbye for right now. But it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change the fact that the suffering is real. But the suffering is not without hope. And I think that that's something that we've got to hold on to tenaciously. Romans 8, 18, it says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I believe that one of the most important things that we could get our heads around, if we could grab a hold of and refuse to let go, is, is this, uh, this fundamental truth that the scripture promises that life is going to be difficult. Frederick Buechner said it best, life is terminal. And, and there is a reality to that, that life isn't just terminal, it's often impossible. And Jesus himself, in his upper room discourse, he says to his disciples, he says, he says in this world you will have tribulation. And we all know it's not just tribulation because we're followers of him. It's not just difficulty because we're Christians and much of the world is not and there's an animosity toward being Christians. There's suffering that comes from every angle. And the only thing that separates a Christian from a non-Christian isn't that we suffer less, it's just that we are to suffer with hope. That we actually believe that Jesus has this powerful way of weaving the dissonant notes, the painful notes of existence into his redemptive song. During the marriage uh, conference yesterday, uh, just thinking about the, this idea that, that, mending, um, that mending is a part of making, um, that, that marriages have the, the powerful capacity to take the broken components of our marriages and actually and, and, and move in vulnerability and honesty to, to bring mending and healing that can actually bring about something even more beautiful than what was there before. It's, it's the trauma bond, is it not? It's a, there is something about bonding over trauma. Um, and I think that, that this is, this is a, a thing that we have to understand is that the only thing that will help us to endure the, the, the reality that life is impossible is to also hold tenaciously to a, a eternal perspective. That's why I've been pushing on this idea that the age that we live in is an apocalyptic age, that, that we are living in the last days. And just so you know, Jesus basically said the last days, I would argue the New Testament declares that the last days began the day he began walking on earth. <laughs> 
the incarnation brought into motion last things. And this is why it has always been intended that God's people live with an expectation that Jesus could return at any moment. That there will be a day when Christ will put right what is wrong with the world. But it is a faulty idea to think that we are the ones responsible to get the world ready for Jesus' return. We're not gonna make it better. We are called to live in a world that we are told will grow increasingly dark, will grow increasingly hostile against the gospel, and we are to continue to be a part of Jesus' great rescue mission by being witnesses. We don't save people. Jesus does the saving, but we are called to be the hands and feet and the mouthpieces by which the living Christ is made known, that we proclaim that there is one who has actually put a nail in the coffin of death once and for all, that we aren't working toward victory, we're working from it. And it is from that position of victory, working toward a future glory, that we are able to suffer well. The question is not, will I suffer? The question is, is how will you suffer? And will your suffering actually be a one more thing that points to the beauty of who Jesus is? I just finished uh, rereading um, a Nobel Prize winning poet, um, Franz Wright. He actually died of, um, of uh, I think he died of colon cancer in 2014. He's only, him and his father are the only poets ever, father-son poets to both win the Nobel Prize for poetry. Uh, but Franz Wright won, this, won the, the, um, the prize uh, when he wrote this book called Walking in Martha's Vineyard. And much of it is his reflection on, on his re-found faith. He came, he came back to the faith of his childhood toward the end of his life. And he was a man that struggled pretty significantly with mental illness, with drug and alcohol addiction. And, and what's so powerful is that he, he writes honestly about suffering, but there is always this element of hope mixed into it. And it's driven by the paradox. Listen to this passage. He says, when I step outside, the ugliness is so shattering. It has become dear to me, like a child precious to me. If only I could tell someone. The humiliation I go through when I think of my past can only be described as grace. We are created by being destroyed. What a powerful line. We are created by being destroyed. I love that paradox because that's what I refer to as the good death. It's the idea that we die again and again to the lie of what God never intended so that we can come alive in Christ that we can walk in the power. And often the difficulties and the trials of life are the very things that Jesus uses to shape us more and more into his likeness. The first groan that we find in this passage is in verses 19 through 22. And I think this is a powerful passage. It says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Remember why I said that the past, why it doesn't say sons and daughters of God is because neither male nor female, all are one in Christ. The picture is, is that we are viewed when we are in Christ is that the Father covers us with the sonship. Uh, we are treated like the son. And this is why that language is used. It's not, a, it's, it's, it's not really making a statement on, on gender. It's making a statement on who Jesus is in our position as followers in him. It says, 
while creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, Paul with a poetic stroke personifies creation, that creation is unwittingly involved in the fall. Um, And we think about we think about the, the tree and the serpent, and we think about the, the fact that everything we know in the universe is driven by this law, the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is breaking down. It's one of those strange laws that seems to fight against, uh, against certain scientific theories that somehow everything is getting better. Uh, the, the law of thermodynamics tells us that no, things are breaking down. And I think that, that we have to understand that sin for us is our rebellion against God's rule. It's our refusal to allow him to be Lord. It's our desire to be our own God. But it is also, it is also a rejection of his grace. It's the belief that all that is necessary um, for living is to be found within myself. But what has human beings done to the world that they live in as they have continued to plague God since the beginning of time? is that every, every endeavor to recreate Eden on earth has only led to ever-increasing problems. If you read Jacques Ellul's Technological Age, what he talks about is that we have become enslaved by our own technology. We don't understand that every advancement we make uh, as human beings actually comes with new found consequences that actually, I believe, ties us together more increasingly, and this is why Alul said, I believe that, that sin is becoming increasingly collective. Now, every person is responsible for their own brokenness, um, and we all must give an account to God, but we also must understand that with the rise of social media and our smartphones and globalization is that we are more tied together and are less capable of escaping the brokenness that is around us. You know, it's like we, we as Christians have always tried to find ways to insulate ourselves from the darkness of the world. Like the only way to be a Christian is just to, you know, be like a turtle and pull our heads in and, you know, try to keep true to all of our, all of our strong convictions when in actuality that's never been what the Scriptures command us to do. In fact, that, it's actually fighting against the gospel. It's how do we bring the truth of the gospel into a world that is groaning, that sin has infiltrated every arena of human existence and it has actually unwittingly impacted the creation itself. And it shows us that there is this spiritual reality that is at play where there is a continual deterioration of existence due to sin because whoever sins is a slave to sin and the wages of sin is what? Death. And death is something that we see being played out all around us. And it's something that is deeply troubling because the curse, we're told in Isaiah 24, 6, has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. Again, in Isaiah 65, 17, the promise of a future, why we must hope for 
Jesus to return and to set right what is wrong is the powerful promise that behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth and the formal shall not be remembered or come to mind. And now there's all sorts of debate around what does it mean for there to be new heavens and new earth? Will it, will it be the greatest recycling program in, in history or will it literally be something totally new? And I think that it'll have something of the familiar, but it will also be something totally new, just like Jesus' resurrected body. He wasn't recognizable, and yet he was. He seemed to be able to enjoy material realities, but he could also walk through walls. He is a picture of new creation. And I think that we, whatever the new heavens and the new earth is, is going to be like, I can promise you that it's gonna be good if sin is not a part of the equation. <laughs> And that is our hope. And our hope is that it's not over. And that our hope remains the same is that though we are sinners, God in his sovereignty continues to choose to love you in your sin. He's not content to leave you there though because he's a holy God and there's a severity to his love which means that even his love can bring about some suffering in our lives because it always hurts to be defined into the person that God intended us to be. Just like it hurts when you go to the gym and work out to work toward a particular goal. You have to break the body down in order to build it up, which is why it's best just not to do it, right? <laughs> we, we, we do seem to be masters at the paths of least resistance. It, it's, 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 it's really true. I have found that all one really needs is a good Red Bull. Everything that one needs for nutrition is found in a Red Bull. I'm, I'm fighting against Portland, um, Portland snobbery or food and drink culture. So anyone, time someone gets a really good coffee, I just like to go get a watermelon Red Bull. Yeah. I like monster drinks too because the cans are so ugly. Um, I don't know, it's the contrarian in me. It's all part of the curse, guys. It's all part of the, the, the fact that things are breaking down. 2 Peter 3.13 says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isn't this a powerful picture? The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I think it's interesting, too, that that language is used. Jesus uses the language of childbirth um, in the apocalyptic language of, the, of Olivet Discourse in which he talks about his return, that there will be childbirth pains. I, I think uh, Paul gives us the picture in 2 Timothy when he talks about, and in the last days, the love of many will grow cold, and people will be lovers of themselves, proud and boastful, disobedient to their parents. They, they will be lovers of money, always searching, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's so many facets that, that people will heap up for themselves teachers that will that will scratch their itching ears. And I think that we see this happening all around us right now, that the church is continuing to collapse under the pressures, uh, the cultural pressures to adopt the ideologies um, that are coming to us and created by fallen minds that are teaching fallen minds. And we are more concerned often with the empty ideologies of the world than we are with the Word of God and with God's heart toward us in that Jesus said many people are going to come 
saying they've got the answer to existence. They're gonna keep coming. But we need to be understanding that in a fallen state, we have an unbelievable capacity to continue to create gods after our own likeness. That the very one who saved us can often feel like the unwanted guest in his own house. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, it is my deep conviction that much of the church today would surrender Jesus willingly if they thought it would bring peace on earth. And that's deeply problematic. In verses 23, 25, not only is creation groaning, awaiting its redemption, it says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for, the, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I often say that biblical hope is, uh, is a combination of desire and expectation. It's not like, I hope the Blazers win. It's, it's a hope that's driven by a promise that we are called to, by faith, say, believe that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And a disposition of trust in Christ means that we allow him to be himself in and through us. And the Holy Spirit wants to bring assurance to our hearts. People have been asking me lately, is it possible to know, really know, God's presence? And I would argue that yes, it is God's desire for you to know that he is with you. Uh, and I do think that we apprehend far more than we comprehend. And the Holy Spirit wants to bring assurance to us. I believe the reason that often we don't experience the assurance we so desperately seek is because we actually haven't put our trust in Jesus in a way that allows him to bring assurance to our lives. Because if you continue to live as if Jesus isn't with you, inevitably the outcome is that it's going to feel like he isn't with you. It's not that he isn't speaking, he is perpetually speaking into his creation. The problem is, is that we don't know how to listen for his voice. It is that still soft voice. It's the childlike faith that comes with a readiness to meet with God. And I'm not saying that you aren't going to experience his absence, but listen, one of the great statements that Christian Wyman, uh, he's a, a poet who came to faith in his book, My Bride Abyss, he said, he says, I would not be able to speak of God's absence unless I had known his presence. It's like the scene in The End of the Affair by Graham Greene when at the end of the book, the man who's, um, who's lost this woman he's been in love with and having an affair with because she has this radical conversion and he's an atheist and she promises that if he, he has an, there's an accident where he is in a bombing during World War II and um, the apartment that they're in uh, gets bombed in, by the Germans and he's under rubble and has died and she prays, if you raise him from the dead, I will end this affair and I will follow you faithfully. And that's exactly what happens. He rises up from the dead and she, in a, she feels like she's seen a ghost and rushes out and he never talks to her again. And the whole book's him trying to figure out why this woman left him that he loved so much. And he finally discovers that it's because she came to faith. 
and, he, and at the end of the book, he has a conversion and it comes in the strangest way. He says, I hate God for taking her from me. And then a paragraph later he says, but wait a minute, if I hate him, that means I believe he's there. And if I believe he's there, if I'm capable of hating him, that would also mean that I'm capable of loving him too, as well. Powerful, strange book <laughs> that deals with grace. But I think that this is the, the reality is that we have to know that, that there is a hope that our lives are based on. And it's not based upon our experience, it's based upon the, the fact of what Jesus has already accomplished for us. And the more we trust in that fact, the more we cast ourselves in dependence upon the, the saving work of Christ, that the cross continues to be our center. And when we live in the shadow of the cross, the outcome of that is that the very one who hung on the cross and dealt with our sin, that dealt with death, that dealt with the dominions of darkness, becomes an actual presence that one can know. It's that, it's that small, that quiet, still soft voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. That's either true or it isn't. And if we're not worshiping and serving a Christ who is present with us right now in this place, then we are wasting our time. Jesus is available. And the hope that we have is not in what is seen, but it's, it is what we know in the depths of our beings because the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts as a, as a, a stamp of God's approval upon that finished work of Jesus reminding us that we are saved not because of anything we have done, but because what he has done for us. And this is a beautiful aspect of the gospel. Hope is used, I love in this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verses one through five. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I love that, that picture, and I think that the times where I've seen the truth of that passage be lived out the most fervently is when I've been around believers who are dying, who recognize that the outward person is perishing, but the inward person is being renewed. You know, the last few times I was with Luis Palau before he died, there was an even greater sense of child as his body was moving toward those final, those final days, as he was moving toward going to be with the Lord, the longing to be with the Lord, the hope of heaven became all he wanted to talk about. And, and there is also an increasing, what I would call an increasing, instead of bitterness at the fact that he was dying, it was actually an increased childlikeness, a sense of wonder. It was like he was already beginning to get glimpses. He's already seeing something that we aren't seeing, that it's always there, we're just often blind to it that there's a mystery, that there's a sacredness, that, that what I would call the sacramental cast became more increasingly developed in the man as the physical body was 
perishing. And I think that this is a, a, a beautiful picture. And I think even for us as we get older, uh, I did not think about the hope of heaven as much in my 20s as I do now that I'm in my late 40s. As I move to the middle part of my life and then as we keep moving further, the two friends I've lost of cancer died at 45. Um, so I'm like, like life, life does seem to be terminal and I'm more aware of that. I used to think I was immortal. Now I just think I'm immortal until I'm called home. Um, and so I think that this is the, 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 the fact and I think we need to be aware of our own, our own mortality so that we cast ourselves more fully upon the, the great hope that the best is actually yet to come. And if you think you're experiencing the best now, I would argue you don't understand the gospel. The best is yet to come. Finally, the spirit groans. This is such a powerful passage. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we are. If anyone thinks they know how to pray, let me just remind you, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. If you're nervous about coming and joining us on prayer on Wednesday mornings or Sunday mornings because you don't know how to pray, let me just once again, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. The good news is that our prayers are like, I, I like to say that prayer is like a, like a toddler that only the mom and dad understands. They're just starting to talk and they, they say something to you and you're like, I, don't, I have no idea what you said. And then the parent will just say, this is what they said. Or the older brother or sister, like they said this. They, they understand the broken babble of, of, of the toddler. The Holy Spirit literally takes our broken prayers and communicates them on our behalf. I like to say it this way. I'll be like, Lord Jesus, I really would like um, a new Ducati and then the Holy Spirit goes, Lord, what he needs is actually some suffering. Let's strip all things away from him. <laughs> what he actually meant is discipline. He wants a spanking, um, a spiritual spanking. Uh, like, let's give him mm, like Ducati or shingles. Shingles, let's give him shingles. <laughs> but seriously, I think that the Spirit, we often like, God doesn't give us what... what what I, what I asked for. I'm like, he's not answering my prayers. I'm like, he's absolutely answering your prayers. It's just that you're asking for the wrong thing and his answer is no. Uh, because the best gift that God can ever give is himself. And the spirit actually groans within us to remind us, like, I, I feel like the spirit groans uh, and it can be a groan. We forget that everything we do, everything we look at, everything we participate in, we are asking the Holy Spirit to participate in that thing with us. And I would ask you the question of the things that you participate in, the things that you watch, the things that you, the things that you give yourself to, how often is the groaning of the Spirit a groan of grievance? And how often is the groan of love? Now, I don't think you can separate the two. I think the Spirit grieves because He loves. <laughs> And he grieves because we continue to give ourselves to things that break our hearts and breaks his. Uh, but I think if we would remember that God has not left us to our own devices, he has literally put his Holy Spirit within us, if indeed you have the Spirit. And if the Spirit is within you, then every time, and I'll just sit, use this because it's the low-hanging fruit and easy example, every time you look at porn, that your, the Holy Spirit is being asked to look at that with you. 
Every time you participate in, in just unchecked anger and speak in a way that is hurtful to another, mistreating another, the Holy Spirit is being subjected to that behavior. And the Holy Spirit is a good teacher, not a good dictator, which means that it requires our surrender for the Spirit to lead. It requires our surrender. The only people that are truly free are people that are born again. And the moment you have freedom is the moment you have the possibility of making a giant mess of that freedom. It's, it's Chesterton's great statement that, that there are, are, are a multitude of angles by which we can fall, but there's only one way to stand. There's only one way to go, and that way is Jesus, which means there's a lot of ways that we can get off path. And the fact is, is that it takes no struggle to drift, that drifting requires just not doing anything. And the people say, well, what am I supposed to do? If you're saying I have something to do, then are you moving toward works and away from grace? No, I'm saying the one thing you have to do is to, sur it's not so much a step as it is a surrender that you allow the, the word of God to wash over you in such a way that it draws out of your heart repentance. Because repentance is a beautiful word that actually creates movement. It's a change of direction. It's a continual realignment by which we say, I, I was once this, but now I am new creation in Christ, and I'm going to move forward and surrender to him because without him I can do nothing. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more sinful I see myself, not the less. The longer I'm with Jesus, the more he reveals things I didn't even know were issues before. And sometimes old issues become new issues all over again. And this is why we have to again and again come to that place in which we allow, we yield to the spirits searching, are you willing to pray? Holy Spirit, reveal in me anything that is unworthy of you. Put to death in me anything that is unworthy of you. What is the Lord convicting you on today? What is he asking you to lay down and what is he asking you to pick up? Where is he asking you to stop going and where is he asking you to go? I like to say that Jesus says, follow me without saying where he's going because it doesn't matter as long as we're following him because that's where you should be. And we have to pay attention to the groans of the spirit within us. The spirit is interceding for us. We're told that the son intercedes for us as well. It's so fascinating that our prayers are so lame that it takes two people in the, in the Godhead to make sense of them. <laughs> the Spirit interprets it, and then the Son's like, I still, I'm not sure if that's even quite right. This is actually, no, I don't think that's how it works. But, I mean, it's just funny to me that even the picture of, like, two members of the Godhead trying to make sense of our, of our, of our psychobabble. God is good. What it shows is that we have a God who cares, a Holy Spirit who is the helper, who is the comforter. We move from assurance to action. We move into a, a position where we have assistance against all opposition. This is what is available to us. Listen, guys, on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. He has not left you to your own devices, and yes, life is terminal, but God is good. And death 
has been dealt with once and for all on the cross of Calvary. And this is why we never stray from the cross because the cross is our door of hope. It's the key to our power. It is our equilibrium. It is the means by which we can meet with again and again the living Christ as we and all of creation awaits his return. Amen? Let's pray.